Why we are Baptists. Not a question, a statement. Why we are Baptists. There's Bible reasons why we are Baptists. And I want to establish you, remind you, confirm you in those reasons so that you can defend the truth about baptism against the other 97% of those that call themselves Christians that do not practice Bible baptism. The only criterion that we can use for making such a statement and declaration is the Word of God. Anything else is man-made opinion or tradition, and we reject them all. The Bible tells us that we are not to add to or take away from what God's Word has said. Deuteronomy 12:32 tells us that. Matthew 28, 20 tells us that. When Jesus said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That verse teaches you don't add to or take away from what the Bible teaches, from what Jesus and his apostles taught. Because if you teach all things that Jesus commanded, that means you can't take anything away. And if you teach whatsoever he commanded, you can't add anything to it. So there we have the standard of God's word. We're forbidden to turn to the left hand or the right hand. According to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 32, and Paul said, Though an angel from heaven would preach any other gospel than what we've preached unto you, a left-hand gospel or a right-hand gospel, let him be accursed. All the opinions of all men or any opinion of any man is worthless in comparison to God's holy word. That is the only way we know about baptism. You can't learn it by gazing at a rose. You can't learn it by looking through a telescope at the stars. It's only the word of God that will show you the truth about baptism And the issue is not that you don't know the truth, but that I want to remind you of the truth and see if you know enough to be able to defend it. Because there are sharp efforts being made by others to use the Bible to try to overthrow the Baptist doctrine of baptism. Why we are Baptists. There's no more hope for infant sprinkling than there was for offering strange fire before the Lord in Leviticus chapter 10. Do you know what that brought upon Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron? Instant death, the fire of God. Our God is still a consuming fire. And he does not accept innovations, renovations, modifications to his doctrine and practice that the Bible declares for us. There's no more hope for infant sprinkling than moving the Ark of the Covenant on a new ox cart. Which brought about the death of a man named Uzzah. Because, as David would say later, we did not follow the Lord according to the due order. There is a due order for doing things God's way, and the due order for baptism is the Baptist way. And we are Baptists, and we're thankful to be Baptists. And we'll defend being Baptists, and I want all of you to be able to defend that. Baptism is a glorious thing. It shows so much doctrine of Jesus Christ. And it is so foolish to the world, that makes it delightful to me. How about you? The more the world hates it, the more I love it. The more the Pope despises Baptist baptism, the more I love it. The more they want to attack it, the more I want to defend it. The more they ridicule it, the more I want to see in it. Because it has so much to say about Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and change lives by those who get baptized. There's other distinguishing marks of Baptists, but we want to focus on baptism. Many Baptists are in hell. 
Because truth on this subject is neither the means nor the evidence of eternal life. And we know that ourselves, even though we get pretty worked up over the subject of baptism. We don't have the the word or the name Baptist in our church name to be as scriptural as possible because the churches of the New Testament weren't named Baptist churches. And because there's 400 to 500 Baptist churches in Greenville County that we don't want to be associated with 99% of them because they hold things that we don't hold. And we don't want association by name linking us with them. But if you look at our sign, the Church of Greenville, the first word it tells you is that we are Baptist, just to help anyone that might be inquiring about us. Would you die for baptism truth? The Lord thinks you're worthy of death if you want to go against baptism truth by the examples I just gave you. But would you be willing to be a Baptist martyr and defy the baptism of Rome as not being a baptism at all? Even if it would cost you your life. How much do you believe the truth of God's word? How strongly would you stand on the due order? Who was the first Baptist martyr? John the Baptist. Now he didn't die for the doctrine of baptism. He just died for Baptist preaching. Because Baptist preaching didn't allow a man to have his brother's wife. And that's what he died for at a stupid little birthday party when a stupid little girl obeyed a wicked mother and asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. You say, could anything that cruel happen in the world? It happened. And it's in the Bible for us. A wicked mother moving a stupid little girl to make a request of Herod that would not have done it except he got himself in a pickle. By making a promise that he should have backed out of as soon as he realized that it was going to be used for wickedness. Is it right to make a promise like that, then back out of it when you realize someone's going to use that promise for wickedness? Absolutely. What's your example in the Bible? Name name his name. Solomon. Absolutely. Solomon told Bathsheba when she came in to ask a favor of him, he said, Mother, ask anything you want to half the kingdom. She said, I want Abishag for Adonijah, your brother. He just said that for his death. Kill him. Why? Because Abishag was a confidant of David the king before he died. And and Adonijah taking that woman was trying to add to his resume again to take the kingdom. He had already been guilty of sedition once. And Solomon immediately understood that. And so he backed out of that promise to Bathsheba. And God defended him and justified him in it. Because once a person uses a promise for means other than you intended the promise, you keep the spirit, but you don't keep the letter. He would have given his mother anything she wanted if she had had a righteous request. His mother was being used by Adonijah, who was a wicked man. Why we are Baptists? I want to preach this partially in memory of the Antipato Baptist Church of Christ of Georgetown, South Carolina. I am thankful for the early heritage of Baptists in our state, and I hope that you are. I want you to realize that persecution against Baptists for their doctrine of baptism is not something that we've made up or that only happened a long time ago in other nations. William Screven, a Baptist pastor in Kittery, Maine, brought 28 members of a congregation out of that state down the eastern coast in boats 
to Charleston, South Carolina and established the First Baptist Church in 1692 in this part of the United States. The records are still on the books of the fines that he was fined and his imprisonment for preaching baptism the way I'm going to preach it today. He defied infant baptism in the state of Maine. But the state of Maine had a state church. And that state church was the Congregationalist Church. The Church of Jonathan Edwards. The church that baptizes babies and persecutes Baptists. Baptists have always been a persecuted lot. We have enjoyed a period of time where we don't have civil authority being used against us in this nation. And for that, we want to continue to pray. And for that is why I mention what happened in Texas. After William Screven, the father, started the First Baptist Church of Charleston, it wasn't called that back then, but started a Baptist church in Charleston, his son Elisha moved 60 miles north of the little town, there was no town there then, he laid out the city plans for a little town called Georgetown, South Carolina, and there he marked out a one-acre plot for the Antipato Baptist Church of Christ right next door to the Church of England, where he gave them two acres. Because they were the state church of South Carolina at that time. Brethren, I'm talking about time so long ago, it was a hundred years before our nation's revolution. They came north to those rivers there that run in from the Atlantic Ocean and laid out a city. Elisha Screven, a Baptist pastor. And he called his church Antipato Baptist Church of Christ. Antipato meaning against child baptism. Antipato. Do you know what a pediatrician is? You don't take your mother there. You take your children there. A pediatrician is a doctor that deals with children. Pado. They call themselves Pado-Baptists. See, the, the word Baptist covers us. The word Baptist means to dip, immerse, or submerge so, uh, believers. So they call themselves Pado-Baptists. That's what Presbyterians call themselves. We're Pado-Baptists. Because they baptize kids, they baptize babies, they baptize infants. So Elisha Screven called his church the Antipato Baptist Church of Christ. Now it's the First Baptist Church of Georgetown, South Carolina. I love those two men. Persecuted for the doctrine of baptism, they leave the state, they come to our state, they establish two Baptist churches that stood for many of the things we stand for. Do we hold our doctrine because they held it? No. We just rejoice that they held the doctrine that was given to us and them by the apostles. If we're only half right, if we're only half right in what we believe about baptism, then infant sprinkling is an abominable perversion of baptism. By which the answer of a good conscience toward God is rejected. And the beautiful figures of what Jesus Christ did for us are denied. Because in burial and resurrection from water, we see the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see burial and resurrection of physical bodies that will be resurrected in the last day. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience. And Catholics have have never seen one of the infants they've baptized. Because infants don't have a conscience. It doesn't matter that ancient or respected men believe different than we do. It doesn't matter at all. We're going to follow John the Baptist. We're not going to follow John the Kelvin. 
We're not going to follow John the Lutheran, John the Presbyterian, or anyone else. We're going to follow John the Baptist and Jesus the Baptist, Mary the Baptist and Paul the Baptist. They were all Baptists. It doesn't matter what anyone else says because what the Word of God says is more important than any one of them or all of them. It doesn't matter. They're just names. We don't even know if they believe what they say they believed. We don't even know the books that have their names on them were really written by them. You don't know anything about those men. You don't know who Origen was. You don't know who Tertullian was. You don't know who Augustine was. You've never met John Calvin or Martin Luther. They're just names. They'll all stand before God and give an account as to how faithful they were with what God showed them. It doesn't matter whether we're for, with, against, or different than John Calvin, Martin Luther, or any of those men. What matters is, are we with the Apostle Paul? Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions as ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Not their epistles. We don't care about the church fathers. Whether they're the anti-Nicene, the Nicene, or the post-Nicene fathers. Nicene means the Council of Nicaea, called in 325 A.D. by Constantine, the emperor of the Roman Empire, to have a church council to settle things once and for all in a state church that he wanted to be in charge of. That's called the Nicene Fathers, the ones that lived during that period of time. The anti-Nicene are the Nicene Fathers before that. The Apostolic Fathers are the ones they think were within one or two generations of the Apostles. The post-Nicene fathers are the fathers that came... These are Catholic church theologians that came after the Council of Nicaea. And if you want to spend the big bucks and have a pretty library, then you buy the anti-Nicene, the Nicene, the Apostolic, and the post-Nicene fathers so that you can put 40 books on your shelves of Catholic theologians and call yourself Reformed. Do you know the only people that buy buy the fathers other than the Catholics are Reformed? Because they worship antiquity from the Catholics. Because that, they believe that's where they came from. Reformed Baptists believe they came out of the great whore. We don't care about any of those fathers. I don't care about Tertullian. I don't care about Origen. Those men were twisted and mixed up. Go read them. And it doesn't matter if they were or they weren't. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about baptism? Many of you do not know much about the controversy over baptism. You may have been raised Baptist, or you may have only been known Baptist and gone to Baptist churches. So you may not know how bad it is. But Baptists are only 3% of so-called Christendom. All those people in the world that call themselves Christians, number 2.1 billion. But Baptists are only 60 million of those, 3%. 97% can't figure out the doctrine of baptism. And they are making an attack against Baptist baptism. Catholics practice effusion. They sprinkle. That's what effusion means. Presbyterians practice... No, effusion is pouring. Presbyterians practice aspersion, which is sprinkling. We practice immersion, which is submerging. And those... Different denominations and men holding those positions have argued and fought and debated for millions, if not billions, of hours and millions, if not billions of pages. But the Bible is very clear. God did not give the Bible to confuse His sheep. And if we will read the Bible and follow a logical, 
systematic approach to it, it'll show us the truth so clearly. And you can defend the truth against any number of theologians that want to hypothecate or hallucinate or imaginate about the Bible rather than reading the clear statements that it makes about baptism. Let me show you how bad it is. Holy Father, would you come in and pray with Laura and me? I can see God in your eyes. Let me tell you about their baptism. It's going to take a couple of minutes. How did anyone that had ever been taught by the apostles end up believing something as ridiculous as I'm about to read to you? And some of you had this baptism. The first thing you better do when you're going to baptize your baby as a Catholic, the first thing you do, you better give them a Christian name. And do you know what a Christian name is? It's a name of a saint. And if you don't give your child a name of a saint somewhere in its name, the Catholic Church will. So you better get started off on the right foot. You're going to get a new name at confirmation as well, but you're going to have your church names, and you better start off with the name of a saint. The second thing you better do is you better pick a godparent for your children. You better have a godfather and a godmother that are going to come to that little baptismal ceremony with your little two-week-old baby. You better dress that little baby in a white christening gown. You can buy them in a Catholic store or you can go find them in other stores. But they need to have that white christening gown because that's emblematic of their righteousness that they're going to have in the great day of judgment before Jesus Christ. Baptism takes place in a Catholic church in four places. Outside, foyer, inside, and at the baptismal font. You're going to, this, get into this, folks. This is what happens when you take one step away from apostolic tradition. Once you take one step, then it's easy to take the second step. Once you leave anything by one step, what's going to keep you from taking another if you could justify the first one? The first one starts outside. The priest, wearing a violet stole, a stole is a piece of cloth about so wide that drapes around his neck, comes across his shoulders or over his shoulder. He starts out by wearing a purple one. They stand outside the church, symbolizing at this point that little baby is not a Catholic yet. Little baby has not been taken in as a Catholic church member yet. Now, I'm not going to go into the details. They're all here. I'll give them to you. You can Google them. You can find out exactly what the priest says in Latin or English. But he asks a few questions. Of course, baby's just, just squealing if the sun's in its eyes. Or if it's too cold and doesn't have enough clothes on. Baby's just squealing. But the sponsors, godfather and godmother, do the talking for baby. So there's some questions asked. And godmommy and goddaddy answer the questions. Listen to how dumb they are. Priest. Baby. Oh yeah, all the questions are directed to baby. By baby's name. Baby, what do you ask of the church of God? God, daddy. Faith. Priest, what does faith offer you? God, daddy. Life everlasting. Priest. If then you desire to enter into life, keep the commandments. 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and with thy whole soul and with thy whole mind and thy neighbor as thyself. Did Jesus make that point to prove that you couldn't be saved by keeping those commandments because no one ever had? They quote it as if you can, but let's not get into the details or you're going to get lost. We're still outside the church. Baby ain't a Catholic yet. The priest has a violet, a purple stole around his neck. He does some questioning. He uses baby's name and God daddy answers. Then they have the exufflation. So where's that in the Bible? The exufflation. The priest breathes three times on little baby in the form of a cross. The priest breathes three times in the candidate in the form of a cross, recalling the Spirit of God. And the priest says these words, Go forth from him, unclean spirit, and give place to the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. I know of one man between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, that could breathe on his apostles and give them the Holy Ghost. Amen. We're still outside. We're just getting started. It takes a lot of different ingredients to make these fancy brownies. We're still outside. The sign of the cross. The priest now makes the sign of the cross with his thumb on baby's forehead and on baby's breast. And he quotes a bunch of ridiculous words like, I have done this that baby may deserve by keeping thy commandments. To attain the glory of regeneration. The priest then places his hands on the candidate's head, that's baby's head, and says a whole bunch of other words. Then, ba- then priest takes some salt. It's blessed salt. You don't get it out of your shakers. But they've got blessed salt in a Catholic church, and the priest puts a little blessed salt in baby's mouth. And says, baby, literally, except it's a name. Baby, receive the salt of wisdom. Let it be to thee a token of mercy unto everlasting life. May it make your way easy to eternal life. Now we get to come inside the church and stand in the foyer. That was outside. Salt in the mouth, breathed on by the priest. He's got his purple stole on. He's asking baby questions. And they call this a baptism. How did they ever get there? I'll tell you how. Because God sent them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Because they received not the love of the truth, they might be saved. And you better love the truth that you hear from the Word of God. You better love it and you better obey it or God can take it away from you and deceive your heart. Listen, this makes Harry Potter seem mature and sophisticated. Now we come inside the church and we have the informal exorcism. Wouldn't the devil already be gone after a priest breathed on that poor baby three times and said, Spirit, be gone, receive the Holy Spirit? No, we're just getting rolling. Now we have the informal exorcism. The priest makes the sign of the cross over the candidate three times and says, I exorcise thee, unclean spirit, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What name did you need in the Bible? For casting out devils. One. The name of Jesus. Jesus we know. And Paul we know. But who are you Catholic priests? 
Go home and Google the event of Pope John Paul II trying to cast out a devil in St. Peter's Square. I'm serious. And watch the person possessed of the devil laugh him to scorn about his total lack of power to touch them. It's not on YouTube. You have to read it. I wish it was on YouTube. The exorcism. There's a whole lot of other words. But I exorcise thee, clean spirit. The sign of the cross. The priest again makes the sign of the cross on the candidate's forehead. What does the Bible say a cross is? It's a curse. The imposition of hands. For the final time, the priest lays his hand on the candidate's head. Now we get inside the church. We were in the foyer for those three things. The informal exorcism. So now we come inside the church. Nope. Just before we come inside, the priest lays the end of his stole. He's got this purple thing around his neck, and he lets it run across baby. Because that running across baby shows his priestly authority to let baby come into the church and become a Catholic church member. That the priest lays the end of his stole on the candidate as a symbol of his priestly authority and admits him into the church building. And God Daddy says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Apostles' Creed, and God Daddy says, in Our Father which art in heaven. Then they come into the nave of the church. They're inside the main part of the church. We have the solemn exorcism. The priest, I exorcise thee, every unclean spirit, in the name of God, the Father, the Almighty, in the name of Jesus, the Christ, his Son, our Lord and Judge, and on and on it goes. Keep, listen. The priest takes a little spittle and touches the ears and nostrils of the candidate with it. He used to spit in their mouth. They've got a little bit better, and now they're trying to take this away because with what those priests do in their spare time, you don't want them spitting on your babies. The priest takes a little spittle and touches the ears and nostrils of the candidate with it. And says, while he looks up to heaven, Be opened for an odor of sweetness. Be thou devil begone, for the judgment of God shall draw near. Priest to baby, do you renounce Satan? God daddy, I do renounce him. And all of his works, I do renounce them. And all his pomps, I do renounce them. The priest anoints baby with the oil of catechumens. What's the oil of catechumens? Olive oil. The priest anoints baby with, the, with olive oil on the heart and between the shoulders in the form of a cross, saying, I anoint you with the oil of salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord, that ye may have everlasting life. We ain't even to the waters yet. Where did all this garbage come from? 1.1 billion people do this, and another 900 million copy parts of it. We finally get to the font. The font isn't very big. The priest removes his violet stole and puts on a white one. Now we're about to have the baptism. There's words I'm going over that are done in Latin or English, depending on where you are. You've got to remember that the water they pour on a little baby isn't just ordinary water. It's water they have in a big cistern that they keep all year long, that they bless during Easter vigil. And that water that they bless is water plus olive oil 
from the oil of catechumens and olive oil and balsam from the holy chrism. Holy chrism is a special oil treatment they have. And they pour all this into the water, and it's blessed at a certain time, and they have to keep that water all year long. And if they look like they're going to run out because they've had too many baptisms, then they get to add water as long as it doesn't start to look putrid. Those are their words. Okay, the God Daddy and God Mommy take little baby up to the font. The priest pours water over the head of the candidate three times, once after each mention of the divine persons. The water he uses is the special blessed water I've told you about. Then it's time for the anointing of chrism. And this oil and balsam are applied to little baby. And the priest says, May the Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath regenerated thee by water and the Holy Spirit, and who hath given thee the remission of all thy sins, may he himself anoint thee with the chrism of salvation. God, Daddy, says, Amen. The white linen cloth. The priest takes a white linen cloth and places it on the head of the candidate, symbolizing the purity of their souls, and says these words, Receive this white garment, which thou mayest carry without stain before the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ, that thou mayest have life everlasting. I only want one cloth draped over me when I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the righteousness of saints described in the book of Revelation. Not some little white cloth that one of those guys lays over any baby. The priest then gives the baby, or a sponsor, because the baby could burn itself, a lit candle. And they go home and have a party. And that is Catholic baptism. 1.1 billion strong. How do you get to that? How do you get to that? You take one step away from the Word of God... And you set yourself against the Word of God, and God will blind you and deceive you and send strong delusion that you would believe a lie. And then step two is pretty easy. And then step three, and pretty soon, instead of pastors, you have priests. Instead of the righteousness of saints, which is the, the fine linen found in the book of Revelation, you have white claws, you have lidded candles, you have salt in the mouth, and you have priests spitting in your face, breathing in your face exercising devils three times. Did Jesus have to do three times or you're out type of a thing with anyone that was possessed of a devil? Never. Why did I read through all that? Because I don't think all of you appreciate how rare our doctrine of baptism is. Out of 2.1 billion people that call themselves Christians, there's only 60 million of us. And as I wrote you yesterday, only 3% of them can probably defend the truth. Are you one of those that can defend it? Do you know what, where to go in a Bible and how to deal with the doctrine of baptism? There's three issues at stake that we want to deal, that we want to keep very clear in our minds about baptism. Number one, baptism does not save. Number two, baptism is only to be done for believers. Number three, baptism is always by immersion or burial in water. Three things. And you've got to keep those straight so that you don't get confused. Those are the three principal things. Baptism does not save, it's only done to believers, and it's done by immersion. As soon as you make the assumption that baptism saves, it gets you into all sorts of heresies, which I have tried to teach you that this is where all these evils come from. If you believe for a second that baptism saves, then what are you going to do for women whose little babies are dying before they reach the age of 20 during the Dark Ages? 
you're going to invent infant baptism to comfort mommies. Because mommies with dying babies want lots of comfort. They want comfort that little baby is in heaven. Especially when they're not taught and they don't submit to the sovereignty of a living God who loves their baby, if that baby is to be loved, more than they've ever loved it. We trust our God as a faithful creator. The Bible tells us. As soon as you make the error that baptism saves, then you start baptizing babies so that you can comfort mommies. No matter what happens to your baby, it's going to heaven. Then you start only sprinkling or pouring because you run into difficulties and it's hard to find much water. So you pour or sprinkle. Then, because you know, then because you know that pouring or sprinkling is not taught in the Bible at all, and you know that you're going to have to only baptize those that are of age, then you get rid of original sin. This is the church of Christ. The church of Christ will only baptize those of age that are able to believe, so they get rid of original sin and total depravity, so that if baby dies before getting baptized, it goes to heaven because it's not a sinner yet. Then you've got the church of the Mormons, that says that the only baptism that counts in saving is a baptism in one of their temples originated by Joseph Smith in the early 1800s. And so you can get baptized over and over and over and over again by proxy in one of their underground baptistries in one of their temples, not their churches, their temples. You can get baptized by proxy for all your relatives. All those heresies came from one fatal assumption. Baptism saves. Baptism doesn't save. The Lord Jesus Christ saves. Children, who's the example in the Bible that went to heaven without being baptized? After baptism had been established by John the Baptist. The thief on the cross. Jesus told the thief on the cross, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Baptism doesn't save. Jesus Christ saves. The ancient landmarks are being removed by Baptist churches. Baptist churches are changing their names because they're now ashamed of being a church and they're ashamed of being a Baptist. One of the strongest Baptist churches in this city, as measured by the fundamentalists, was Southside Baptist Church, which is now on Woodruff Road. It was on Augusta Road. It was the biggest, most powerful Baptist church in town as far as fundamentalists are concerned, where Bible preachers used to come, as far as Arminians can measure a Bible preacher, used to come in this city. Now that church, Southside Baptist Church, is known as Southside Fellowship. They got rid of the word church and they got rid of the word Baptist. They don't want people to think they're going to church when they go to church. And they don't want to limit others from coming and joining their church who might not be Baptists. The big one in Michigan was down there on Telegraph Road, or Southfield, I can't remember, one of the two, Dad, you would remember, Temple Baptist Church, not far from where you used to live, Charlie, when you grew up, Temple Baptist Church, biggest, biggest Baptist church in Michigan for many years, strongest Bible preaching in the state of Michigan, that was its reputation, now it's moved 30 miles out to the suburbs and it's called Northridge, it's like going to a rock concert. It's nothing but a big party with Starbucks in the, in the foyer. It's just a big party with light shows. They've got one called New Spring in Anderson. It's going in on Roper Mountain Road at 385 in the, in the Harris Teeter Bilo 
failed business grocery store. It's just a big light show. Go look it up on, go look it up. You can see their light show online. They're no longer wanting to be Baptists. Listen, there's Baptist churches relaxing their baptismal standards where they'll take a Presbyterian sprinkling. John Piper's Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. John and Piper is one of the number one writers, authors, and preachers that are called Calvinists in our generation. And he's made that change in that church. They'll take a sprinkling. You know, we had the first Baptist church at Greenville. That's that big cathedral sitting over on Ferris Road across from Greenville Tech. We had that church relax its standards on baptism. You don't have to be immersed in order to be a member of their church. While the Baptists are compromising, the Catholics and others are making new efforts to try to overthrow Baptist doctrine when it comes to baptism. We'll argue from our English Bible. For other men have ably proved that the Greek word baptizo means immersion. Lots of men have proved that, but we don't need that. The definition of a word, the meaning of a word, is not what you can find in a lexicon, which is a dictionary of the Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic languages. The definition or meaning of a word is how it's used in its context. Second graders learn that when they're in a spelling bee. They do not ask the teacher to give me a definition from a dictionary of that word. Because they still don't know which word is under consideration for sure. Because some words with the same spelling have different meanings. They want the word used in a sentence. Because when a word is used in a sentence, you know exactly what word's under consideration. Amen. And when we find the word baptism in the Bible, we can read its context. And it talks about burial. It talks about resurrection. It talks about planting. It talks about going down into the water. It talks about coming up out of the water. How smart do you have to be to figure out what baptism means? It requires much water. It says, see, here is water. And he wasn't pointing to his camel. And he wasn't pointing to his canteen. He was pointing to a body of water they had arrived at. Amen. We'll argue from our English Bible. Why add the further confusing element of a dead language from which no debate on this subject has accomplished anything? By our standard of faith and fruit, the King James Bible is enough. What they can confuse beyond recognition... What they're able to confuse beyond recognition from their Greek and Hebrew-fying, we will explain to a plowboy from an English Bible. That was what William Tyndale intended with the printing of the English Bible. I will have every plowboy in England knowing more truth about the gospel than the bishops of the Catholic Church and the Church of England. They didn't like that. He burned for it. But that's what he said. Those who fly to the Greek... Live among the tombs due to a legion of versions, readings, and lexicons. Which New Testament are you going to pick if you want to go to the Greek? There's 50 of them. You haven't reduced your problem at all from the English Bible. Which Greek New Testament are you going to appeal to as your holy original? Once you get into that version that you've picked, which of the readings on some of these verses are you going to consider authentic? And once you find a word like baptizo, which lexicon are you going to use? Since there's so many, and they have different definitions. There are men that have spent their lives reading classical Greek literature to try to figure out what the Greek word baptizo means, which is transliterated into our language as baptism. 
when they both went down into the water, both, Philip and the eunuch, both, you know exactly what kind of baptism was taking place. Especially when we have a whole lot of other verses that tell us what baptism better include. Brethren, we, we combine deductive and inductive reasoning to find the truth about baptism. Deductive reasoning is reasoning that goes from general, true propositions down to particular individual specific cases. Deductive means you start with an absolute rule that in general applies and you work it down to each individual case. When we say something ridiculous like this, all basketball players make lots of money. That's a general proposition. We can establish that as being true. All basketball, all NBA basketball players make lots of money. So you've got to word it so that you know it's absolutely true. Then once you have that general proposition, you can say, John is a basketball player in the NBA. What can you conclude from that connection? That John, that plays in the NBA, makes lots of money. That is arguing from an absolute axiom or rule of Scripture. That, that, that particular one wasn't, but deductive reasoning is finding statements in Scripture that we can count as absolute rules. Inductive reasoning is when you start with John. John makes lots of money. John makes lots of money. What can you do with that little statement? John makes lots of money. Can you say all Johns make lots of money? No. Can you say John will make lots of money next year? No. What can you prove from John makes lots of money? John makes lots of money and you're dead in the water. But if you start out with deductive reasoning, arguing from some of the axioms, that's rules. Absolute rules that scripture gives us. Then you can use inductive reasoning. They use inductive reasoning like this. Lydia and her household were baptized by Paul. See? Infant baptism is taught in the Bible. Does that teach infant baptism? You can't even prove Lydia had a husband. Who was her household? All the servants that she had manufacturing purple. She was a seller of purple. Are you with me? That's inductive reasoning gone to seed. That's inductive reasoning that doesn't work. Then they get this loose. Circumcision was the entry for little boys into the Old Testament church. What can you prove from that? Circumcision was the right of entry for little boys into the Old Testament church. Does it have anything to do with baptism? Does it have anything for little girls? Does it have anything to do with the New Testament? That's how they argue. But they will do it. They will do it and do it and, and try to overwhelm you with these ridiculous inductive reasoning arguments that have no basis in a New Testament. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. If you want a favorite verse about baptism that you can know about and use and that they don't know much about and that they don't like, this is the verse. And if you want a verse where you can show that the modern versions of the Bible have corrupted a text of Scripture, this is it. There's three axioms that we can establish from a Bible about baptism. They have no axioms. They cannot establish that any infant in the New Testament was ever baptized, 
by any mode. There's no evidence of one. They're not at all. They can never show that there was a sprinkling or a pouring called a baptism in the entire New Testament, ever. They have no axioms. They have no rules by which to guide them. So their inductive reasoning, can, they can reason anything they want. When they look at John chapter 3 and verse 23, it says John was baptizing in Anan near to Salem because there was much water there. Because they have no guides and they hate Baptists, they say that the people needed a lot of water to drink. And if you're reading a commentator that doesn't say that that water is for people to drink, then it's for all their animals they brought along with them to drink. You are lost at sea if you don't have axioms of deductive reasoning to start with. And we have three of them, and they're taught in one verse. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a verse about baptism. We don't have to induce that or guess that because it says baptism. But notice there's three things that this verse teaches about baptism. And it's the three things we want. Baptism does not save. Baptism is only done to believers. And baptism is always by immersion. All in one verse. The like figure. Let's look at that first word. The like figure. There is a figure mentioned in verse 20. The figure mentioned in verse 20 is the ark. Which God put Noah and his family in and shut up the door. And they were saved by that water lifting up that ark that drowned everyone else on earth. In that ark was a picture of salvation. It was a figure. It was a real ark. But that real ark was a figure of salvation in Christ. The like figure. There is another figure like that figure. And the like figure is baptism. Baptism is a literal event in water. But it's a literal event that has a figure or a likeness to it. And so there's a figurative salvation attached to baptism. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When something is in parentheses, you can remove it for the moment to look at what is not in parentheses. Because what is in parentheses is additional information that is not necessary to the flow of the sentence. That is what a parentheses means. Ignore it for a moment so that we can get the flow of that sentence. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism itself is a figure. It's a symbol. It's a picture. It has a likeness of something. And it saves us by a figure, by a symbol, by a likeness of something. And what is that something? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism had better have the form of a resurrection of Jesus Christ in it, or it's not Bible baptism. And that form is a figure of what Jesus did for us, and it saves us figuratively. Then in, so we've got the mode settled. 
The mode of baptism is taught in 1 Peter 3.21. It's got to show a picture of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Then in parentheses, now let's go get what's in parentheses. The first thing it says is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Does baptism wash away your sins? No. But if you're really sharp, you're going to say, but in Acts 22 and verse 16, Ananias said to Saul of Tarsus, Now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Does baptism wash away your sins? Figuratively, yes. Because baptism is a figure. But it doesn't wash away sins literally, because within parentheses it says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. And you know that on these points we can establish them with 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 other verses of Scripture. But let's just go with one because of time. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a figure of Jesus Christ's resurrection. So we've got the mode settled. You've got to put somebody under something and raise them up out of it in order to get a picture of resurrection. Second thing we've learned is in the parentheses, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Baptism does not save a person. It does not wash away your sins, literally. It does not put away the filth of your flesh. Three, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. In the parentheses, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know the mode. By the first clause inside the parentheses, we know baptism doesn't save. By the second clause inside the parentheses, we know that baptism is only applied to believers. Because it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. Not until you've heard the gospel and you have a good conscience that Jesus saved me from my sins, are you eligible for baptism. All in one verse. But I have read, I have read debates and arguments about baptism that never even go to 1 Peter 3.21. They want to go to verses like John 3.5. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. There isn't any baptism in John 3.5, but that's where they go. They want to go to Ezekiel 36.25, where Ezekiel prophesied that God would sprinkle them with pure water. With clean water. But that's talking about recovering the lost Jews that were in Babylon back to their land. Go read Ezekiel 36. They'll read verses about circumcision. But circumcision doesn't have anything to do with baptism. 1 Peter 3.21, brethren. Go right there. And there's so many other verses that we can go to. When we're dealing with the fact that baptism is a picture of burial and resurrection, death and resurrection which I just said from 1 Peter 3.21, we can go to Romans 6 and prove it. Verses 3-5. through 5. We can go to Colossians chapter 2 and prove it. Verse 12. We can prove it from other places in the Bible. But we've got all three in one place. When it says it doesn't save, then we can go to places like Titus 3.5 that tells us, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. When we're dealing with the mode, or when we're dealing with that only believers are baptized, it says the answer of a good conscience toward here, and everywhere else we read about baptism, belief comes first. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Go ye and teach all nations, teach all nations first, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, 
then teaching them to observe all things. So teaching comes first about Jesus, and then you're baptized. We can prove it from other places, but these are three axioms about baptism. This verse is not just some historical description about one particular case of baptism. This is not Jesus being baptized by John. This is not Philip baptizing the eunuch. This is not Philip baptizing the jailer. This is an axiom about baptism. And it's got three points, and we can establish those axioms from other places. And what are they again? Baptism does not save. Baptism is only applied to believers. And baptism is always by immersion or submersion in water because it has to show a picture of resurrection. Those are three things that can easily be proven from the Bible, and we are not dealing with Ezekiel 36, circumcision by Moses, and other things like that. We are not trying to read salt into the Bible or spitting in baby's face. We are going to the Scriptures of God and reading what they have to say about baptism. And we have three axioms. And we can deduct from those three axioms. Baptism must show a picture of burial and resurrection. Baptism never saves. Baptism is only applied to believers. And with those three things, those three general rules of the Bible, propositions from the Bible, axioms about baptism, we can then go and look at any passage about baptism and use it for inductive reasoning and rejoice in the beauty of God's Word. When we read about Lydia and her household in Acts chapter 16, that the Apostle Paul baptized Lydia and all that were in her house, her whole household. What do we know about that statement? All it says is Paul baptized them. Do we know what mode he used? Absolutely. On what basis? First Peter 3.21 and the other verses that prove by an axiom that baptism in the New Testament was always in a picture of burial and resurrection. Do we know whether they were believers or not? Because that's an axiom from 1 Peter 3.21 and every other place that establishes that rule about baptism, it's only applied to believers. Do we know that it doesn't save? And it wasn't applied to infants? How do we know all that? Because the Bible denies that. It has to be the answer of a good conscience toward God. That is a general rule about baptism found in 1 Peter 3.21. And you apply that to Lydia. You do not go into Lydia in, in Acts 16 and come out of it saying, Lydia, we know that Lydia had a nursery at home or she wouldn't have had a household. And so there were infants baptized there. They just assume, assume, assume. You can't do that and prove anything. You have to have rules. And once you start assuming anything without a rule, you will end up spitting in baby's face, having God daddies and God mommies, and wearing stoles. Lord, save us from any such corruption of your word. When we come back, having established three axioms about baptism, let's just look through the pages of Scripture and rejoice, because we can take the inductive reasoning of all the particular cases. Jesus meeting John. John at Jordan. John's only at Jordan until candidates arrive for baptism. Because then what changes in that preposition? John is only at Jordan until people get there to be baptized. Then where does John go? Into Jordan, you bet. And we're able to look at all those and just start gathering all this inductive, these inductive facts of particular cases throughout the Bible. Because none of them even suggest 
anything contrary to the three axioms that you're able to establish clearly from the Bible. Are you with me on how that's done? I hope you'll think through that. There's a whole lot more that could be said. Baptism does not save. It's only applied to believers, and it's always by immersion. The Bible teaches that plainly. And God's saints who humble themselves before God and who have not been given strong delusion see it clearly and rejoice in it. If you thought me a little too sarcastic in the first service, there's two sermon outlines entitled Rude Preachers and Instant Preaching on the Internet that will give you all the Bible basis for us ridiculing error. It's the right thing to do. I hope you love Elijah on Mount Carmel with 450 prophets of Baal and how he made fun of them and their religion. The Bible says that uh, their gods don't have eyes, ears, nose, or mouths, and they have to be carried about, and they that worship them are like unto them. That's what the Bible says. We, we would love any Presbyterian or Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Methodist that wanted to humble themselves to the Word of God and seek the truth. Some of them do. When I say some of them, I mean it's less than 1% because most of them just stay there and are totally content with doing things that aren't even second cousin to what's found in the Bible. Second thing I want to say about this morning's sermon is it's chiefly designed for our younger members. Daniel Jones, Austin, Matthew, some of you young men that aren't members yet, we want you to be established in the truth so that when we're gone, there will be no fudging on doctrines like baptism. You will hold to it. You will stand to it. You will hold fast the traditions that are taught in the Bible by the apostles, and you will defend the truth, including the truth of baptism. I left out two things. Brother Mark wants me to remind you that for that hocus-pocus baptismal service, you needed to fork over a little bit of this in order to get that salt and everything done for you. (laughs) Thank you. The other thing I forgot to tell you was that in a Catholic church, it's in the form of a cross. When you stand at the back and look up the long part toward the altar, there is another part that runs crosswise. Usually over in those corners, you have all the candles that are burning for the dead. But on the left-hand side, you're to leave that door open because when the priest is going through his three efforts at exorcism, you need that door open for the evil spirits to get out. Sorry that I left that out.